Hi there, I'm Evan Troxell. Welcome to my podcast about how technology is changing the architectural profession. Randy Deutsch, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Wonderful to be on. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, so so we've been friends on Twitter for a while now, and about a year ago we spoke together, not together at the same time, but uh, you know, I, you went first, I think, on the uh, the Accelerate AEC conference that Building Design and Construction puts on, and that was, I think, the first time we'd actually met in person. Does that sound right? That's absolutely right. It was great to meet you. And and so you're you're at the forefront, I think, of writing about how technology is impacting the profession of architecture. And that's really one of the main things I wanted to talk to you about today. I know that you're a current professor at the University of Illinois, right? And I've taught in the past at Cal Poly Pomona out here in Southern California. I think there's maybe some shared experiences there with with teaching. It sounds like you're doing all your teaching online, where all of my classes were in person. So there's some probably some interesting things there as far as educational um, system, you know, how architectural education is being impacted by the situation we're in right now. And it sounds like maybe for you, not much at all. But I would love to know like how the how the students are engaged with that, uh, more or less, or, or if you're seeing any trends in that thing. Um, and then finally, I think just about writing, and with the importance of writing, and I just wanted to kind of get under the hood with your thought process on why do you write uh, instead of, you know, and, and maybe in addition to all the other stuff that you do, or how do you pick what to write about? Um, so how's that sound? So, sounds great. So. I do I do want to uh, make one adjustment, and that is um, while I do teach online perpetually for the last five or six years, uh, most of my courses are actually face-to-face. Oh, okay. Yeah, so uh, I just have a combination. So in other words, professional practice is a flipped course where we meet face-to-face back in the good old days when we were able to do that mm-hmm. uh, pre-pandemic. But then it's flipped as well where the uh, NAB accredited information, for example, would be online. Well, let's just start there. So with your teaching experience, can you just talk about the types of courses that you're teaching and what are you seeing as trends in students as far as how they're perceiving the profession that they're about to go out into? Sure. I'm a little unusual in this way where I think I was voted in eighth grade as the most likely to grow up to teach professional practice. (laughs) I actually went around to the professional practice instructors um, who were teaching at IIT and UIC years and years and years before I became a university professor, telling the instructors at those schools if they were ever to retire, if they were ever to drop dead, basically one or the other has to happen to take over a professional practice course. I knew you know, very early on, um, in addition to wanting to be an architect, I wanted to teach professional practice. So, yes. So for the last 20 years, I've been teaching professional practice first at UIC, University of Illinois, Chicago, and for the last eight years at University of Illinois, Champaign-Urbana. In addition to that, I teach um, integrated design studios or sometimes referred to as capstone Mm -hmm. design studios. Um, I've taught and teach the sophomore sequence of construction courses, how to put buildings together. I love doing that in part because, of course, to use uh, parametric tools like Revit, um, you really do need to understand how a building goes together, whereas with the previous tools like CAD, you really didn't need to. And in addition to those, I teach a lot of seminar classes, the history of Chicago or design technology seminars. I teach at a university. So 
you know, just to take a step back for a second, Design Intelligence a few years back had a uh, survey where it showed that 50% of all schools were increasing the amount of design technology that they were offering, and 50% were remaining the same or decreasing. So I teach at a university currently where they don't really play up design technology. They assume that the student will pick it up on their own, um, or maybe you're fortunate to take a, a evening course, a weekend tutorial, something like that. Uh-huh. So I've tried to actually slip it into all of my classes, studio, seminars, and my building st- construction courses. So I don't advertise it. I'm assuming my colleagues will not be listening to this yeah. podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and, but I think it's an incredibly important. Because uh, you would be shamed. Is that why <laughs> they would just cut it off? Shamed, tarred and feathered and shamed and ridiculed. Yeah. Uh, you don't But it's just uh, uh, whether or not the school itself promotes it, if it doesn't take away from everything else, it will only add to it. Yeah, that's interesting. When I was teaching, I was specifically teaching technology for the architecture department at Cal Poly Pomona. And (laughs) it was a dedicated series of courses. There were some for, you know, students early on just so they can get a foundational kind of understanding of graphic layout programs and modeling and things like that. Uh, And then all the way up through the grad students where it was like studio, how do you actually do your projects in software? So all the way from, you know, actually building the models to visualizing them. And so it was kind of, I taught classes that ran the gamut of that. And I did that for about 10 years. And then I left teaching there and went to pursue the profession full time. And I bounced around between lots of different places. And and I've always stayed in contact with who eventually became the chair, who was kind of my mentor when I was in school there. His name's George Proctor. And he was uh, always like the digital design teacher when I went to school there. And he really wanted me to come back and teach it. So I did for a long time. And then I left. And then I always stayed in touch with him. And I went back a few years ago to teach some seminars and from a very different point of view. And they were more emerging technology in the profession because I had now kind of come into the role that I'm at now as, as digital practice director. So I had a much bigger understanding of how technology plays a, an important piece of all of the different aspects of what we do. You know, it's it's important to say it out loud a lot, especially when there's the older generations around is this is the only way we deliver our projects. That's how important it is. It's, right. It is a means to the end, but it is the only way we actually do it. And so you you have to place the importance on that that it deserves. Um, so I would then teach this to students and give them basically a, a roadmap of all the potential careers they could have in architecture that are, let's just say that these are mostly things that have happened within the last five to 10 years that didn't exist before that. So mm-hmm. I think that, you know, that was really eye-opening for the students, but but this was really in response to they completely stopped teaching technology kind of how-to classes at the school and just gave everybody a lynda.com account very much the attitude of they're going to learn it on their own, and we don't have time to teach this. We, we need to dedicate more time to design. And I think this kind of gets into the business of the university more than anything, which is how do you attract students? You attract them with great design and great design courses, and you're ranked very high for design. And not necessarily those technical skills. Again, they're a means to the end, and students will do what it takes to figure out how to do that. But it also doesn't serve them very well when they get out into the workforce and they say, like everyone, the, the first question at any hiring thing is, do you know Revit? Well, do do I actually care how they know Revit? I should because they all know it differently. 
because they're yeah. all learning it on their own from somebody on YouTube or lynda.com or LinkedIn Learning, whatever it is. And that to me is kind of a like there's lots of things wrong with architectural education, but this is one of the big ones where the profession can't really get better because everybody's stuck in this loop of retraining all the time. Um, and honestly, today, I'd rather retrain you <laughs> because yeah, no, I'm going to train absolutely. you how I want you to use the software when you come to work for me. I don't necessarily want you to use it how you've always used it because we all know that that the closer you get to the deadline, the more shortcuts everybody takes anyways. But it's sure, interesting it's, to see the different schools have kind of a different approach to they will train in software or they won't. Um, they'll leave it up to the students. And honestly, there's so many resources out there now. You really can learn it. But but learn it is just that's there's no standard to that anywhere. Yeah. So um, for three years, up until 2019, I was the associate director for the school, the grad program um, where I teach. And I got to see between that role and teaching professional practice to final semester grad students, almost all of our graduating students' uh, resumes. A lot of them have pie charts and bar charts showing the skill levels. Skill levels, exactly, yeah, yeah. which is which is essentially, in their minds, tool levels. And every employer I've ever surveyed or interviewed um, in the last half decade, I'd say, has said their understanding of that is it's an academic level or academic level of understanding of the tool. It's not what we do in practice. Yeah. But I think you're adding an, another layer to that, which is it's not just that there's an academic level and a practice level. Practice level, for example, would include workflows. That's something that's, you know, the biggest shock to most of our graduates once they go out in the world is, you know, you're working with others through the process. Because that in school is something that they don't necessarily have to do unless you have a multidisciplinary studio, let's say. So I would say that most employers understand they're go- that they're going to take on some of the training to shape the student's understanding of the tools for how it's used within the practice. But one more thing I want to react to that you just said, you, you referred a couple times to means means to an end. Mm-hmm. And I actually, the way I teach these tools in seminar class in particular, is that it actually goes beyond the means to an end. So while, yes, we may agree in contractually to use Revit and everyone on the team will use it to produce contract documents, the reality is, is that each of these tools are shaping the way we think about what we're designing. For example, with Revit and BIM, in terms of means and methods, the tool itself will actually force you to think about sequence mm-hmm. and think about yeah, uh, absolutely. the concept of time, right? Yep. Yeah. So this goes with visual programming tools and all the other tools. I think it's more than a means to an end. I actually think mm-hmm. it has an influence on the design process and the way we think. Yeah, that's a really it's, – it's kind of a nuanced point because as far as our – like what are, we're contractually obliged to deliver – the tool, like the client doesn't care about the tools that we use necessarily. Sure. They, they might if they're a really kind of advanced client and they're going to continue to use the model for facilities management or, or whatever beyond, beyond occupancy. But they don't care what software program you use to render. They don't care what you use to model. They don't care if you use generative design to solve a problem. But, I, but we do. We think it's important. And so while I say it's a means to an end, I'm kind of thinking of that as a, from a deliverable standpoint and a client standpoint. Sure. But Absolutely. from us, uh, like I said, it's always the first question. Do you know the XYZ software? And I think what's really interesting is like everybody can learn to use the major platforms a little bit differently um, as long as you 
understand the fundamentals, you should be able to flow between them. But I think where it gets really interesting is is when you start talking about computation, because you're actually designing the algorithm to solve a problem in potentially lots of different ways. And I think that kind of shows a completely different skill set. And that would be an appropriate question, I think, that a student could get asked during an interview coming out of school is, show me some problems that you've solved with by by creating, by using visual programming, by using coding to solve a problem that you didn't want to continue to solve over and over and over again. Or maybe you had to do it really bespoke and you only used it once. But this is something that we come up against quite often in practice, which is creating some kind of customized tools that do a certain thing for us over and over and over again because we're tired of doing it or because the problem needed a specific solution that could only be solved that way. And I think that kind of, again, lifts the hood, for lack of a better analogy, on the, the way that the person thinks and how, about Absolutely. how to approach solving a problem. Right. In a lot of my writing, I've referred to computational thinking as nothing more than recognizing by, I don't know, noon or one o'clock each day, whether you have repeated something two or three times. And at that point, you ought to create a loop. So it's recognizing uh, any repetitive element or activity or event that uh, could be automated. And again, not to put yourself out of a job, but to free yourself up to uh, focus on your core competency. And I think a lot of employers, um, if they're not already, very soon will be looking for that in their employees and recent graduates as well. So what kind of questions do do students ask you who are on the verge of graduating? Or or I guess what I'm looking for here is you have particular insight that's probably different than a lot of other professors who either teach at the same school or at different schools because of the exposure you have created for yourself outside of, of that realm, you know, in the profession at large. What kind of questions do they come to you with or maybe insights that you've pulled from them that they say, you know, I've noticed this about you. You talk about this stuff and none of my other teachers talk about that. Yeah. So in a, in a uh, dream universe, <laughs> that would be the case. I end up teaching uh, the subject of asking better questions, learning how to ask better questions. In mm-hmm. fact, my um, one of my upcoming books is um, in part on the topic of critical thinking and trying to find the subject or the question behind the question or find the subject of what it is you're really looking for. Unfortunately, I would say the vast majority of the questions I get asked when you really analyze it and look behind the scenes a little bit, they're looking for a job. And not just in this, uh, this pandemic time we're in right now, it's almost all the, in all the cases, that's pretty much it. It's a little disappointing in the sense that, the questions aren't uh, more theoretical or philosophical or um, deeper. They are very practical. Um, I think in part, you know, it's not a criticism I'm saying this because I bring it on uh, since I have one foot in practice, um, practicing as an architect for 30 years and uh, doing practice-based research, right? So I spoke to you recently for the current book that I'm working on. Mm-hmm. They know that and they pick up on that. And so I think a lot of that does shape a lot of the questions I get. And they are, for better or worse, if not job related, career related in that sense. Yeah. So I wish I I had uh, a better answer. So because of that, 
I am being a little didactic when I talk to them this way as a professor, but I try to reword some of the questions that they have to um, open them up a little bit um, and to look at different things. And also, um, so they become self-aware that the questions that they're asking are pretty transparent to others that have been around for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, as associate director, it was kind of interesting for me because uh, for three, you know, I'd see 16 to 18 students per day, five days a week in my office for three years. And they come in with these great questions, but 45 minutes in, they were looking for funding or they were looking for a job. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's like their ticket. They knew, you know, that I enjoy a good question. Uh-huh. Um, but behind it all. So it's it's easy to get cynical and just, you know, cut them off in the first couple seconds and say, why are you really here? Yeah. I've never did never did that. But, uh, you know, that that's you start to think that way. That's um, interesting. I do want to say when I taught over the summer at Har- um, Harvard GSD or when I lecture on the engineering campus, the questions are brilliant. They're just amazing. Mm-hmm. Very thought from a whole different cohort of student. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I, you know, most of my experience in this comes from either that last class that I taught a few times or from my other podcast and where, where we just share what it's actually like to work in the profession. I think a lot of times... Students are looking for the answers or for for insight into what it's actually like to be an architect because they're not getting that necessarily from their studio professors because a lot of the studio professors either have a boutique firm or are not working at all. They're just teaching. And so they're not sharing kind of the war stories of the day-to-day They'll share the scary stories of how the client sued them, but they won't share just what it's actually like. What's your day to day like? Um, and so the most most of the questions that that I've got or that we've got from our other show, Arcaspeak, and through teaching that course on emerging technology that we're kind of employing at our firm and that they could look at as a potential career path, is very much like thank you. It's more of just a statement. Thanks for talking about this because we're not getting this yeah. anywhere else. And I think that that's really interesting. And it's not just from the students, but it's also from people who've been in the profession for a really long time and maybe just haven't had a broad range of firms they've worked for or teams to work on. Or, you know, they get a lot of people get pigeonholed into just you get really good at something. That's all you're ever going to do kind of thinking where we've had retirees say, you know, we'll turn on the show just to hear the banter because it's like I'm in a studio again, even though I'm sitting at a desk by myself, which is now everybody but it was very much like, uh, this is just what it's like to be an architect. And I think that I would assume that students, if, if that's not on their radar, it, it gets on their radar at some point. And, and once they're kind of beyond the, I just need to find a job kind of a thing, they actually want to know, maybe before that, what is it like actually being an architect? Because I know it, I have a feeling it's not like this, right? It's, it's not this... <laughs> design heavy course where everybody's a designer you know it's that's three percent of the field and then there's the project managers and the project architects and the people who make sure the building doesn't leak and there's the teams of various lots and lots of people to make these projects actually happen it's kind of a false sense of what the profession is like and again i think it kind of goes back to the business of a university to say like what attracts people to come there to study versus what is it actually like to be a a practitioner in the profession. So I think, you know, they're obviously you're balancing that by teaching pro practice and by working in these other things. But overall, I think it's kind of a, 
you know, there's not a great alignment. And I wonder if this pandemic kind of time where people don't have to go to the university to get the coursework might start to think about, or maybe we as a profession can start thinking about retooling the educational process so that it does serve the profession better so that we can progress. Sure. Yeah. So just to split that up a little bit. So first of all, I just want to say to the credit of our students in the architecture program, historically in North America, 50% of architecture grads go into architecture and become an architect and 50% go into what's sometimes referred to as non-traditional practice, right? So they work for as an owner's rep or work for a contractor or construction management or become a developer and so on and so forth. And I mention that because um, I've been serving our students now for a decade and they self-select at 97% to become licensed. Hmm. So that's a really high percentage. It's not 50-50. So given that, going into the school, even as an undergrad, coming to a school like University of Illinois, I think they have potentially a better idea. Maybe the high school they went to, they were able to go into architecture firms. We have something called the Chicago Studio, which every couple of years I have the opportunity to teach. And we go into between 16 and 32 different firms. And they have a pretty good idea of how architects operate. So again, just to their credit, um, just to backpedal slightly, I would say maybe what's behind not asking the questions about you know about practice is that we have a practice-based school with that kind of reputation. That's They've self-selected uh, attended. So the other thing is, I think, in terms of uh, alternative ways of learning architecture, I thought it's interesting that when you referred to yourself as a teacher, you mentioned Pomona, but you didn't mention all the two great tutorials that you have on your website and that you've offered, because that's a form of teaching as well. For sure. Yeah. But behind that is the fact that universities uh, signal, they send a signal, right? So when you go to Harvard, when you go to Yale, when you go to Pomona or University of Illinois, right, there's a signal associated with it. It's almost like a calling card in a way that's sending a message about what goes along with an education at that school. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's, the signal, signaling is going to remain important from an employment standpoint. The reality is, though, there are definitely much better ways to learn how to transition from, let's say, high school to working in an architecture firm, not just working in one, but excelling, thinking like an architect and so on. I think NAB, for example, I was tweeting about this this morning, did a good job. Because of the pandemic, I don't think people really realized that we have new conditions and procedures that came out earlier this year on the NAB side. So all that means is um, every six to eight years when a university's uh, architecture school program gets reaccredited, we finally have updated for the first time in six years um, or five years these uh, conditions. And the conditions are much more open-minded. There's still, there's still holes you can shoot in them. There's still things that are missing We've been saying for years that we can't possibly put everything into an architecture curriculum because there's just so many hours, right, Mm -hmm. uh, which you can teach. It's part of the reason why schools have had um, digital technology and design technology in the evenings or weekends as opposed to in courses themselves in a lot of cases. But I do want to say that the new conditions are a lot more open-minded in terms of social equity and social justice and health and well-being. And yes, in terms of technology as well, for the first time, they went beyond uh, building technology to talk about, as you were talking about a moment ago, project delivery 
and the tools that are used to enable that to happen. So I think, and, they're, and also they're not dictating things so much as allowing each school's program to demonstrate how they are delivering on these conditions. Yeah. I would love to kind of shift the conversation now towards your, you spoke about tweeting um, and you've written books and you do speaking. Who's your audience? <laughs> That's a that's a really good question. I actually think it's uh, shifting and changing, and I'm reacting to that by, you know, you op- opened off our our conversation by talking about how technology is changing the architecture profession. The theme of uh, this podcast and in the theme of our conversation right now, my audience historically has been the design technologists, at least for the last decade. And I think that's about to change. I, I did something interesting, at least interesting for me. I got a wonderful gift a couple of summers ago that sent me for the summer to participate and attend at Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois, their communication school, not architecture design school, communication school, working with communication professors who've come from like a speech writer from the White House and somebody who, who um, has had their own talk show on television for 20 years and so on. I met with each of these people separately and then sometimes together, practicing not just how I communicate, but also thinking in terms of how do I want to spend the rest of my life and what's the most effective way of going about it in terms of who I am. Mm -hmm. I thought this was really interesting because it wasn't, it turns out it wasn't a great match that um, in 2009, I had selected design technology as the thing I was going to try to promote and help our industry move forward in. I have no regrets about writing four books on the subject, the last one being super users. Mm -hmm. But what came out of this experience in Northwestern was that um, what was actually a better match for my personality and the way I think about things wasn't limited to digital technology and design technology. It was opening it up and really thinking about the whole architect and who the architect needs to be. So long-winded way uh, to come back to your question, um, I think that audience is going to change. It was my hope that Super Users, for example, a book uh, written about the future of practice, but by means of looking at and talking with design technologists, Mm -hmm. was going to be read by just about anybody. And I don't think that's the case. While Mm -hmm. it's almost impossible to know who reads your books, just anecdotally from testimonials or comments online, people who've approached me at talks. It's people who have a bent for these tools that are comfortable lifting the hoods, the the hood on the tools, and um, have that combination along with interpersonal intelligence or emotional intelligence. That combination is unstoppable as far as I'm concerned, but it's left a vast swath of the profession behind, Mm -hmm. those that don't define themselves in terms of the tools. So I've shifted just in the last six months or so. You know, as you know, I'm writing two books right now, and it's a different audience. It's a much more general audience looking at architecture students, all of which, as you pointed out, are using tools, but it's not how they define themselves. And then also looking at emerging professionals and now mid-career professionals in terms of what it takes for them to advance in their careers. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I, I I was thinking about super users when I kind of was kind of formulating that question because it's a little bit of 
echo chamber, right? Because you've got the people who are interested in that subject reading about others in that subject. And what's what's interesting to me about that is that people are reading it anyway, even when there's a really strong community online uh, within that group, right? They they already all talk to each other all the time, and that's a really great a great thing. I mean, Twitter's a great place for that that kind of thing. You know, as you know, I've kind of curated a list of of people on Twitter just to talk about technology and architecture. But then I, I think about the people who should be reading that book. And I and like you said, there's no real evidence about who's actually reading the book. But the people who should be reading super users are the leaders of the firms who are, are established and trying to understand the value of what those super users bring to the table and how to get them to matriculate through the leadership of the firm in a, in a real way. Uh, to me, it seems like you know, you, you've got the ability to communicate with that whole range of people. And like you said, with your new books, you're kind of, you're aiming at a wider swath, which is more of a, and I think you even talked about this in super users, like a super user, you know, one of the questions is, should I be a a generalist or should I be like a a serious expert on something? And I think Mm -hmm. you kind of talk about like real super users are more on the general side of things because they're connecting the dots between all of the different moving parts in a much more coherent way than somebody who is strictly a specialist in one little area. Yeah, well, so it really comes down to empathy. You're just thinking about who else needs to know this and how can I communicate this on a higher level as opposed to you know, using metaphor analogies um, as opposed to getting lost in the weeds. Mm-hmm. One of my biggest criticisms, referring back to this phrase, echo chamber, is this idea that um, over time we tend to use shorthand, sometimes just initials in Twitter, where we understand what's going on. And then yeah. every now and then somebody says, you know, what do these three initials stand for? Right. And, you know, they're willing to go off on a limb just to ask that. And um, any any professional or specialist is going to have their own private language. It's one of the things that makes up a profession. Mm-hmm. Um, but to the extent that it excludes others, I don't think it's really a, a good thing. Interestingly enough, from my standpoint, because I I do write books and the books have led to speaking and the speaking has led to 20 to 30 workshops or speaking at firms uh, around the world for the last couple of years where I'm consulting. Mm-hmm. Interestingly enough to me, I don't see super users everywhere. I see convergence almost everywhere. Mm-hmm. Every firm leader has convergence. Really? Um, yeah. And I don't know what that's I don't know what that's about. Pretty <laughs> big, you know, more pictures to word ratio. Right. The super user name may just imply the youngsters or the emerging professionals and kind of leave the leaders out. That wasn't the intention. But I'm just mentioning this because that was a little bit of a shock to me. And I didn't know how exactly to respond. But So when you write books, you really have no idea. I mean, I don't know. Do you know when you, with your podcast, with the analytics you can do kind of behind the scenes, can you parse and understand who's listening to this right now? Yeah, I think you can a little bit better. Podcasts aren't any, there's no like secret sauce there versus what a what a blog analytic system might have, unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, maybe we shouldn't care that much. But um, <laughs> it's one of those things where you you can read those numbers, you can get kind of crazy about reading those numbers and, and seeing, you know, how many subscribers and then and the, the volume of numbers but I think what's more insightful is that thousand people today are reading it, you know, this blog post in Vietnam. What's right. going on? Right. 
I'm more interested in kind of the geography of the of it of the demographics and the the equity of the demographics to kind of see mm-hmm. you know are we reaching a wider range of people than just technophiles between 18 and 35 you know like that kind of a thing I find that that that's more of a that's just what we're aiming for I don't know it's hard to it's hard to kind of shift and, and actually be really prescriptive about where we want to go with that kind of thing I think a lot of the the angle that we take on our other show is very much of in the moment um, what are we how are we feeling how are we thinking it, it really is more of the water cooler talk kind of thing than than a really specific topic aimed at a certain individual who is our audience I think our podcasts in in general and I think this maybe leads to to where I wanted to take this conversation is I think podcasts in general are their characters that we get accustomed to being around. And in this case, it's in your ears um, versus your eyes, right? But it's some people just tune in to hear that familiar voice and their characters in their lives like they would tune in to watch a TV show every week or two. And I think that there's something really comforting about that. And that's one of the big reasons I listen to a lot of podcasts and you just get familiar with people's voices. You learn more about them over time. The story unfolds over time. And there's this record that you can go back to, and you can even see how people have changed over time, which is very different from a book, right? Because a book is very much a moment in time, a lot more like a photograph than than a podcast. So what I wanted to talk to you about when you're, when you're writing, and when I wrote when I wrote my book, it was very much of a time, but I thought it was important to write these things down. And I find that when I write, I get a lot more clear about what I think. It's a process that that I use in that way as a tool for that, is to, to understand what I actually think. Do you think about that kind of thing when you're writing your books? Like, why do you choose to write books versus do the multitude of other things that you could do? Sure. So I do want to say, so ARE Hacks, um, your book, I think about it all the time. It opened up a conversation um, that went well beyond the exam itself. And it talked about lifestyle and talked about where you happen to be, you personally yeah. happen to be in your career at that time when that you were studying. Fortunately for me, I had already taken and passed the exam maybe a couple decades earlier. You were smarter, uh, yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> um, just got that out of the way. But Again, talking about empathy, you can just build empathy muscles reading your book, whether you are an architect or you need to take the exam or not, because you created a whole gestalt around the exam. You know, what's the best time to be with your family and give your kids attention? And what's the best time to study, for example, on the impact of studying? You know, this whole idea, for example, sitting at a table and studying for the exam and your kids seeing you do that Mm -hmm. or one's kids seeing you seeing them do that shows you know that you are um studying that you're applying yourself in a way towards a goal and then when the time comes and you pass the goal it's this remarkable thing um right you know the other day we celebrated in our family my getting a fellowship the f and the faia yeah congratulations and, thank you thank you and it was it, what was great about that is i invited my kids to help me you know, it seemed like there was one point in the 40-page application, every time I would change one word, it would quadruple in size and then be outside the uh, you know, size requirements mm-hmm. for submittal. And, you know, even my daughter's boyfriend, you know, kind of found a loop that, you know, a way to get, get the size of the application down, things like that. And by involving everyone, so that way when I got it, they all they were had part ownership of it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. So 
books, I think, are important for the same reason that in professional practice, I strongly suggest and encourage my students to send a combination of email thank you notes to employers that they talk to or anybody that's helped them along the way. And then 24 hours later to send a physical thank you note. In fact, mm-hmm. I hand out blank envelopes and cards and I actually give them stamps. And some of these students are seeing stamps, I think, for the first time in their life. Yeah. <laughs> the thing is, is that, you know, as an, a prospective employer, when you receive a thank you note with somebody that you had an informational interview or a job interview with, you can't exactly turn your laptop um, or phone around to show people, look, I'm admired and liked. Someone likes me. Send me a thank you note versus being able to put that thank you note on your desk and telegraphing to the rest of the world. Again, signaling, you know, I'm being only partially facetious when I say this, that when you send a physical thank you note, it really makes a big difference and people can see it 24 seven. Whereas when you sh- shut your phone or your laptop, that thank you note goes away. Well, I think similarly, When I do go to different universities to speak or when I do meet at these firms and they have a physical copy of the book, either for me to sign or it becomes this touchstone between us that shows that they invested in me, whether they read the book or not, I don't know. They knew I was coming to their office and they have a copy of it. It becomes almost like a talisman in a way or this uh, symbol um, where they've invested at least for that hour or two that we're together or that day that we're together. And we'll talk around that and maybe that'll just be a way we'll kick off the conversation. I can't say, you know, with all these digital tools, whether they're blogs or vlogs or uh, podcasts, you can do something exactly like that. And so that's why the book is the book has never been more than a calling card for me. I knew that in, starting in 2009. With my first book, Bim and Integrated Design, came out in 2011. I knew I was investing two years of my life in writing essentially what was going to become a, you know, a business card. Mm-hmm. It was just going to be an introduction. Creates some more opportunity, I, even. Yeah, that's it. It does. It, yeah. uh, each of these things points to something else, and it's no different than what you're doing with your podcast or many of the other ways you engage with the profession, the industry, and with people in general. I'd go so far as to say, by the way, that people listen to podcasts, just to jump around a little bit in the conversation, um, going back to something you were saying, it is the personality. Sometimes I I will, you know, I listen to uh, conversations with Tyler, Tyler Cowen, um, not at all for the personality. I mean, zero. Mm -hmm. It's actually or the comfort of a familiar voice. Mm -hmm. It's literally to throw myself in a world I know nothing about and have no interest in. You know, I have no interest in the World Bank. I couldn't point to it on a map yeah. if it is an actual bank. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I could listen to somebody for an hour talking about it and how they got fired from it and what that means. Um, yeah. So I think there's that. So I actually think listening to your yours and uh, Neil and Cormac's uh, podcast is the humor. It's the personality. It's the reason why when I close my eyes at night, I can recall any of the 46 episodes of Design Allies. Mm-hmm. is uh, a podcast that's not been around for four years right. because of the humor, yep. right? So, yep, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting. I, I kind of think that the the idea behind all of these things to me is really about that there's power in, in sharing and there's power in sharing ideas. Ideas don't always show up. Like it's there's no guarantee that there's going to be something really useful. But I just still think that there's power in storytelling and in humor and in empathy and in real world kind of scenarios that people share, whether that's on a a podcast or in a vlog or in a book or, or any of these things. And it's also important, I think, at least in my 
in my world is there is important and importance in writing things down and capturing that knowledge and kind of documenting it. I think I take a pretty serious view of I want to document almost everything. And I, I'm not saying that's <laughs> totally healthy, but you know, you're on vacation and you've got a camera. Like, are you on vacation or are you documenting vacation? I struggle with that a lot because I've, I've seen so much opportunity come out of the documentation process that uh, I often say I live in the future, right? Like I, there's people who, who live in the past. There's people who are very present and I would strive to be more in that camp. But I am always thinking about what's next. Where's this going? Where are we headed? And, and so the documentation stuff for me is very much thinking about trying to capture now so that I can be more in the now. Because I, I really have a hard time being being here now. And I think that's what I love about rock climbing. That's what I love about podcasting because I'm here having this conversation and I've got the headphones on and, and we're speaking to each other you know, across the United States. But I'm forced to be here right now. Rock climbing is very much that for me. It's like, you've got to be, it better be. Yeah. Cause if you take your focus off you, that there's there, bad things could happen. It's, it's an interesting thing about writing and the power of sharing that idea and capturing that knowledge. Um, whether, you know, like it's funny cause you write these books and like they're obsolete as far as technology goes, they're obsolete, oh, but the, but the ideas are not. And so like my ARE hacks book is very much about passing the exams that I passed, past tense. But the part that doesn't age out is the fundamentals of how to structure your life so that you can continue, you can do this in the future. It's interesting balance in there. Yeah, uh, yeah, no question about that. I was given some great advice early on in my career, and that was just as a fledgling architect, emerging professional, just in the first couple of years of my uh, life, I went to AI Chicago and somebody there mentioned, just get a shoebox. So this is, you know, before having online files, um, have a shoebox. And every time you do anything or you write anything or anything happens to you in this field, just put it in there. And I love this analogy because that's really how you become a fellow AIA. You, you do these things and hopefully it has effect on other people. But if you don't have a, the demonstration that you've actually done these things, if you don't have a history, if you don't have evidence of it, no one's really going to take your word for it. Yeah. And so you open up that proverbial shoebox, which hopefully yeah. by now is a digital file somewhere, and you pull out tens of thousands of images and ideas and things you've written and published and so on and so forth. And that's when you start to do the editing down. Um, we're going to talk towards the end, I think, about productivity tools, but there's none stronger than meditation in terms of living in the moment. And I learned early on when my kids were really tiny, about 20 years ago, going to their school and looking around at all the parents holding the, at the time, video cameras. And I realized I don't get to do this twice. I don't get to do life twice, only one time. And then from that moment on, I put the camera down. Sometimes, you know, if I really wanted a recording of something, I'd hold it, but it wouldn't be in front of my face because I wanted to live in that moment and have yeah. that experience, right? So this is all we got. And so even when I'm writing a book, so for example, right now in the pandemic, you know, speaking with you um, or sending you questions to respond to um, is very deliberate because it means I will be with people and engaging with people at a time where writing, it, writing a book in and of itself, a book that won't come out for a year or more, 
is a very lonely pursuit. You know, I write 12 to 16 hours a day, seven days a week. And as an experiment recently, I did a book that involved no practice-based research where I didn't talk to another human being. I just, like any other writer, cited sources that I could find, books I've read and so on. And that just reinforced the loneliness. So when the pandemic happened, I flipped for my latest book and decided that um, I was going to make this, again, practice-based, engage with others, and that forces me to live in the moment as well. Mm. People will challenge the ideas in a way that uh, a, a citation of an idea from a book or article won't challenge you. You could always uh, cherry pick which ones you're going to use or not use in the book. People will actually contradict you. In my super users book, I invited Ian Keo, of course, to write the um, forward to the book. And he mm-hmm. completely, he only agreed to do that if he could be diametrically opposed to the idea of, that I was trying to espouse in my book. And I thought that was great. I find I don't, it's not the same as mountain climbing. I wouldn't know about that. But I find it to be every bit as exhilarating to engage with others who have, uh, uh, they're free thinkers, have ideas of their own. And a lot of times they'll contradict the ideas I'm trying to say in, in, in my engaging with them actually enrich the ideas and make Absolutely. them, I think, more useful yeah. for others. Yeah. I think that's the whole power of the critique, right? Like that we all went through in architecture school and maybe even continue to do in practice is you have to be vulnerable and put your ideas out there, but then be open to the potential of response, which could be anything, right? And sure. And you can choose then how to move forward, but if you're only in your own little world all the time, that's in its own echo chamber of sorts, right? It's like you might even search for confirmation bias rather than alternative views. Um, I think it's it's really interesting to kind of put those ideas out there and then be totally okay with getting the oppositional response to it. And that that is where we actually learn, right? I think it's that's what what can make an architectural team so powerful is a diversity and experience that's you know you see things completely differently than i do how can we make that work together to propose a better solution that's not just coming from one point of view so you spoke a little bit about meditation maybe we'll start to wrap up here um i i also meditate i would be interested to know who or how you go about that So I live in a community that only allows two-story homes, and I'm sitting right now in the third story of my home because as a good architect, I found a loophole. And in this uh, third-story tower, I do all my writing, and I've got a cushion on the floor where it just reminds me every day to spend uh, a little time there. So nothing to it, just uh, literally just trying to be in the moment, breathing, and I find it centers me brings me back the moment. There's several things that I do in terms of, quote unquote, whether it's productivity or clearing my head. I do have a routine I've been doing for almost 30 years now, every day without exception. And it's really worked for me. Someday, there are definitely some days where, you know, I'd love to, if I was writing a blog right now, I would write a blog post on it because I really feel like it would help others as well. But maybe it doesn't. Maybe everyone's got their own way of uh, doing things. But Yeah, so there's not much to the meditation at all. Um, I will always read books and listen to tapes and things like that, but it just comes back to sitting and, you know, anytime that voice in my head goes off on a tangent just to bring it back to the moment. Um, It's it's interesting, the whole idea of meditation. Do you, how long do you do it for? Not very long. Um, Between uh, sometimes as little as 12, 
no more than 30 minutes. Okay. Yeah, I, my, mine's about 10 minutes. And I actually do a guided one because I, I suck at it so bad. I <laughs> use uh, Sam Harris's application for it. It's fantastic. Uh, okay. and, and he has a really great little theory episode in there as well. It kind of just you rang a bell when you were speaking about doing things, being in the moment. Um, he has this this recording where it's just him speaking about it's called the last time and how you never know if you're about to do something for the last time um it's like he uses the example in there of skiing like he he didn't know the last time he went skiing that it would be the last time he would go skiing right it's like we, you, we all experience that now with the pandemic right, right? everyone should remember the last time we were in a restaurant right yeah, absolutely and I, and i think about that quite often uh i think that it's one of those you know, when you've got kids, like I have a high school senior who just graduated. I have a daughter who just turned 16 two days ago, right? And it's it's these moments pass, and if we're not there for them, if we're not, then how do you know you're going to get to do it again? And in many cases, like the things I just spoke about, they will actually never happen again. But But even on a more fundamental level of maybe something you enjoy doing, it could be the last time you ever do it. And And to me, that's really where the... I say I suck at meditation, but like everybody on some level sucks at meditation, right? Because our, <laughs> there's so much chatter in our brains. And if if you can get to the part where you can just watch that stuff go by and not have it affect you emotionally, where you can just kind of you know sit back and watch it, I think that's a really powerful place to be. And you can actually truly experience those things. So I think that that's a, it's a fantastic kind of personal hack is to be able to get to a place where you're not constantly feeling like you're rushing. There's a deadline. I've got to do this thing because I'm living in the future because things are about to happen and what might happen next. It's more of what's happening right now and how can I enjoy this moment right now? Even if it's not a good moment, how can I, how can I still just be here and experience it like true experience? Exactly. Because it's the only moment that you have yeah, so the challenge I have, of course, yeah. is given that my cushion is so close to my writing desk that sometimes I'll sit there and I've had to train myself not to like have a writing pad next to me when ideas pop in my head. Totally. What I want to write totally. About. Something like that, right? You let it go. You know, the idea behind that is if it's a really good idea, even at my age, you'll remember it. <laughs> and if you don't remember it, chances are it's fine. Your it didn't readers matter. will be grateful. Exactly. <laughs> right. So. Um, a couple other, uh, if you know, if it's okay mentioning them. Of course. Um, yeah, I, I walk two to three hours a day, so I've always been a huge walker. In the pandemic, in particular, it's really interesting just to see the whole rest of the world walking um, right now. At least in our neighborhood, I'm 20 miles north of uh, Chicago in a small town on Lake Michigan called Winnetka, and um, lots and lots of people walking around. So part of the walking now is trying not to walk into, into other people. But I do that two or three hours a day because, of course, great ideas come when you walk. Agreed. Uh, yeah. Every day for over 40 years, uh, since 1978, I've been writing in a journal. And it doesn't matter. I don't go back and read them. Sometimes they're referred to as morning pages. Right. It's all just getting it down. Just getting mind it mind dump. Exactly. Mind dump. Exactly. It's a really important thing uh, for me to do. Probably the most embarrassing thing uh, I could admit to that I do every day, but it absolutely works. It's kind of like this is a $100,000 idea, if not a million-dollar idea, is literally just say affirmations. And they're not religious or anything like that. It's it's not even about positive thinking. 
I have just found, you know, I've, over the years, I've just memorized these 25 affirmations. When I go on a walk, usually when I'm walking the dog, not even walking myself, I'll just say them to myself and all sorts of great things will happen. And it's just, every day is just filled with a coincidence. And then uh, in terms of listening to uh, music, I do try to listen to one piece at the beginning of each uh, day, usually when I'm walking. Like right now, I'm listening to Gregorian chants when I uh, write. Sometimes it's piano jazz music you might hear in a coffee house. Uh, but there's this one piece called Weightless by Marconi Union. It's an eight-minute piece, literally to the second, eight minutes long, Weightless. It's like meditation, like writing in a journal. It just really clears my head. And so the first eight minutes of listening every day is always to that music. Um, so it kind of gets you in a, in a, in a mind space to... Yeah. It's it's interesting. I recently was talking with with Cormac on on Arcaspeak about the Stephen Pressfield's work about you know he talks about the resistance and he talks about just showing up to do the work. Yeah, that's a that's kind of you got it. It does help to have something to kind of prepare that to prepare yourself for that because it's like it's like being a designer. Like there's no such thing as creativity on a timeline, right? It's you show up and you you participate in as and be as creative as you can all the time so that it's there when you need it right you have to kind of flex those muscles so and get yourself in the right place you figure out what works for you like for me i i am very reliant on my subconscious that that it's working on things while i'm not actively working on those things and that's when those things those ideas pop up in the shower or on the drive or whatever but it's because your subconscious you've been i get to the point where i rely on it so much <laughs> Yeah. You know, you're talking about like, where do the ideas for the books come from? Completely subconscious. There was never a time I sat down deliberately saying, I'm going to write a book on X, Y, Z. Totally. <laughs> Literally agree. not. Yeah. No, yeah. it's like when yeah, I wrote just... ARE Hacks, there was, I'd finished taking the exams and I didn't want to live in that world anymore. But I just felt like it was <laughs> so important to tell the story and, and to help other people in that way um, that, that, that idea came and it was like, I can't put this idea away now. It's too important to do it. Exactly. So who do you, who do you listen to or who are you reading? Like who, who's influencing Randy? Yeah. I don't know about, I don't know about influencing. Um, the way I look at it is uh, what's the perfect music for me to listen to. For example, in the moment of the pandemic, I found listening to the band Mount Erie, E-E-R-I-E is, uh, you know, I just, I don't do streaming. So I just bought all the albums, like 15 albums. Wow. It just, keep them on constant circulation. I like exactly half of the music. Half of the music is like mind expanding, life changing, really meaningful. And half of it, I just skip over. But Mountaineer's just been this guy named Phil. Uh, it's a one person band, just really remarkable uh, music. Really early in the pandemic, you know, going back to February, I was, you know, listening to a lot of Brian Eno's uh, ambient albums. Yeah probably more than at any other time last 30 or 40 years. And I'm also listening to a lot of Laura Marling when I feel like I need to get creative, love her interpretations of things. So that's primarily who I'm listening to right now. In terms of reading, I, I am a bit all over the place in terms of reading. I wouldn't even know where to, to begin. Right now I'm halfway through the um, new biography of, by Ben Thompson of Philip Roth. That just came out, I think, two days ago. Mm. I'm one of those people that um, I have over 10,000 books on my Kindle. 
and I'm always in the middle of four or five. So every day I'll read four or five books. Yeah. So, Are you a completionist? Um, no, not at all. Yeah. So if yeah. If, I, I am a completionist and I've realized that that is stupid uh, for for me, at least I'm not saying that that any particular thing for anybody else. But if you're not enjoying it, this is my own personal kind of new mm-hmm. thinking is if you're not enjoying it, stop. <laughs> There's so many yeah. other things out there that you, you you need to try, right? You need to taste. You need I, I constantly feel like I'm trying to live five lives at once um, sure. because one is not enough. And so why not? Just put that thing away if it's not doing anything for you. Um, right. But there's a lot of people who are completionist in that way. I know right. that there's I have been. Of, right. You've, there's this idea of sunk cost, right? So yes. you've already right bought the Audible or whatever. And my take on that, a couple things real quick. One is I don't let that stop me. So the sunk cost idea is if you spent 16 bucks on something and it's awful after the first 30 seconds, just let it go. There is this you know rule of thumb. Some people will read the first 50 pages or 75. I keep hearing 75 all the time. Like if you don't like the book by page 75, let it go. Oh. I have found there's a lot of really wonderful books who have the worst first 75 pages. <laughs> They're really? editors. Cut it out. So every time I get to page 75 and I don't like the book, I will immediately jump to the halfway point or three quarters way through. And I'm, yeah, I'm pleasantly surprised that it's a much better book later on. So there's that. It's not about completion. It's just what am I getting out of this experience? And again, you know, when you do meditate and live in the moment, try to live in the moment as much as you can. Yeah, you're not going to be filling up time and wasting it as much. So I I do try to make every moment count. That's a cliche. Back back to books for a minute. Um, yeah. You, I, I'm just wondering if if you've ever thought about self publishing. It sounds like you you've done all of your publishing through a through a publishing house. Yeah. So first of all, yes, I've done tons of research in self publishing because I'm an academic, and there's this whole thing of signaling through books. There is this unspoken and sometimes it's a spoken hierarchy, right? So you have university presses, you know, the Oxford Press, right? For a professor that is the most esteemed all the way down without naming names to those that are seen as trade publishers and so on. Mm-hmm. I've never really worried myself about that. It was the either or proposition. Am I going to self-publish or am I going to do it through others? I'm here to tell you only because I've slightly, I'm on my, you know, about to publish my sixth book. There are better and worse publishers out there. And some of the worst ones are very close to self-publishing. The only difference is, is they have a brand or a right. trademark name, right. but otherwise you're doing your own, you know, you're doing your own editing and copy, you know, copy editing and other things, even though you're not supposed to be, right. somebody's dropping the ball. People are getting laid off or furloughed. So I have thought about it in maybe moving forward. I will do more of that, but I have, Again, part of this idea of collaboration, I actually really love BIM and integrated design. It was, and it's one of the reasons I love social media. Somebody in 2009, John Zernick, just asked on LinkedIn, he just asked, he was the editor at the time at Architectural Record, uh, but he's moved on to do great things with his career. And he just asked a simple question, who's got a book out there? Mm-hmm. And so I did a pitch on LinkedIn to do a book on creativity. And he said, well, we don't, you know, do creativity books. What else you got? I love that. Those just those few words. What else you got? So I, yeah. like a typical architect, I stayed up all night and came up with 17 ideas for books. And the next day he writes back to me, having selected three of those 17 and says, 
these three, if you could put them all together in one book, you have a book deal. And what that taught me is, is yeah, you can self-publish, but just think about that engagement I just had with this person. I'm about to right. start off on a book writing career based on this, you know, sort of random engagement and selection. I don't know what he was thinking. Are these three topics brought together? No other book has ever been written on it. So what I wrote back to him is, you know, I think it was leadership, collaboration, technology. I said, what you're talking about is BIM and integrated design. He said, okay, whatever. Um, <laughs> and... So that literally is how that's I ended kicked up it off. With, so yeah, did you yeah. ever think that you were going to be the author of six books? No, never. No, Not no, 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 no. <laughs> I mean, in fact, in high school, I was having conversations with friends in high school. Can you win the Nobel Prize without having written, you know, for literature, without having written anything? Um, that That was about my level of thinking at that time. No, I did not think I'd be writing six books. That's interesting because um, you're so you're so well known for that now. Yeah, it just it, that opportunity came out of you staying up all night writing down seventeen ideas, and look at the opportunities that have come out of that act. But again, that comes from architecture, right? A client comes to you at five yep. p.m. You know, right? Or you're meeting with a client for another project, and before they leave, they just have a conversation with you about this thing they're thinking about, right? And you know, were they trying to tell me, come up with some free schemes and, you know, maybe they'll work with us in mm -hmm. the next time they show up, you have these three schemes and suddenly you have a project with them and it's your dream project. I, I don't think it's any different than that. It's rising to the occasion. I've got this thing I tell students all the time in why not to wear earbuds if you can avoid it um, mm -hmm. in the studio or in the office. And that is there are just so many doors in a career that will open for you. And I don't mean that in like a pessimistic way. Yeah. I just mean, you know, there's there might be 12. I have no idea what the number is. But the reality is, is we can miss them if we're not paying attention. And so I take anything like, what else you got? Anytime anyone has ever said, what else you got? I've dropped whatever I'm doing and thought of that as one of those doors opening opportunities. And it turned out this one was. How interesting. Yeah, that's a it's a, like a little phrase that you've kind of latched onto as a cue to say, yeah. oh, there's something here maybe, right? Mm, right. Yeah. No. And sometimes it's not, right. I think um, what's so interesting about books is just because they are, you know, they're they're one of the only physical things we have left to share ideas in. Um, and there's power in that. I think that when you actually hand somebody a physical thing, that it's more than just a thing to look at, right? It's more than just an object, but it, it contains ideas. It's portable it's by nature those ideas can spread because people can hand these off. Like, what are the what are the chances you're actually going to pick that book up again? I mean, this is one of the hard things about reading digitally. Uh, you know, on the Kindle is like yeah. Kindle's great because you can take notes, you can highlight, you've got that stuff you can refer back to it. On the bad side, as far as bad and good go, it's you can't. It's not as easy to share it with somebody else. And I think there's a huge power in that ability to share this portable thing that contains hopefully really you know potentially life-changing ideas yeah ideas or sometimes even feelings i really think from the feedback i've gotten from super users it's almost more about feelings like mm -hmm. you know if you're a design technologist and you're in copenhagen you're feeling very lonely and the book served as a way to reach out and connect and say there's actually this community and we're we're all in this together we're thinking similarly um we've talked about this before but i think 
that actually became the vehicle for that book more than any of the specific, obviously, technology ideas. One of the things, writing a decade worth of books on design technology, you're talking about the short life st- lifespan for writing on specific subjects like design technology. I try not to have the tool names in the book because, uh, you know, while the book is being printed, that, that company is being usurped by another company right. or it's going defunct. You know, where's Ecotech? You know, did I ever mention that? Right. So I always write it, try to write at a slightly higher level of abstraction just so I can buy six more months of, you know, life support for the book. So they remain relevant for a little bit longer. But there's another thing, you know, you were talking a little while earlier about the immediacy of the conversation that you have on your podcast, mm-hmm. I do think there is a level of immediacy, not in textbooks per se, but in you know in any meaningful book or book that you've learned from, which is any book, go back to 10 years later, and you are a different person, you're a changed person. Totally. You know, the example everyone uses is Catcher in the Rye. It's really hard for a 40 or 50 something to go back and read that book mm. and try to imagine the impact it had on them, let's say in high school. But any meaningful book, I really read every single year of my life of Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby mm. as a touchstone in a way, because yeah. I'm always shocked. Wait, this chapter is a new chapter. I never read this. <laughs> I've never read that before. <laughs> like a whole chapter. Wow. Um, yes. It's, yeah, because I'm just in a different place, different frame of mind right. and so on. A reminder right. to me. Yeah. So there is a little bit more, I don't know if I would call that an immediacy, but um something a little more real that's not frozen in time about books because you, what you bring to it is a different person each time. Yeah. I also love the ability to get an idea or, you know, personalize something out of a book and then share it with somebody else. And then, and now we both have it, right? Like to me, that's, that's something really powerful about sharing a physical object, which is because, you know, we're all used to taking thousands of photos on our phone and we're used to, we're just reading blog posts and, and, and it's very much kind of like magazine culture, right? It, which was like, you flip through the pages and if something catches your eye, you might pause for a moment, but really like our attention spans have gotten so tiny. A book takes a little bit more commitment and it, it's not as throwaway as digital culture can be. Um, we, I'm a hoarder as far as digital stuff goes for <laughs> sure. I mean, I create a lot of stuff digitally, like all the vlogs that I've done, for YouTube or for my tutorials. Like I've got all those source files that made all that stuff. Like my latest episode of Quarantech on YouTube is 200 gigs of stuff. It's insane. And do I need to keep that? No way. I do not need to keep all that, but I do. And I don't know why. And I mean, everybody's kind of dealing with this kind of, you know, they call it like digital smog. It's just crap that that fills up hard drives but hard drives are cheap and they keep getting bigger so what else am i going to do with it i'm not i'm seriously not going to throw it away but i think like a book is so different than that and i i I guess that's what i just keep coming back to in our conversation here and that what's so interesting about actually writing physical books is that there's just something and maybe it's just nostalgia because of my age and you know i don't know but it's it because it's definitely not immediate like the internet is, and it's not like Google and like Instagram and all these things. But it, to me, it it it's like when you think, like you said, you think back to high school and the questions you were asking your your buddies. When I think back, I usually remember a song. I remember something that marks that time, and it's usually music. Um, and and to me, 
like that's that thing that I latched onto. It's not even necessarily a book. I was never a reader growing up, but I just think that that is something really interesting to think about and talk about with different people and see what's influenced them over time and what are those touchstones along people's timelines. And it's definitely not so much for me the digital shoebox of photos in my photo album on the computer, right? Like we barely print photos out anymore. So I don't know why we do it. I don't know. Just kind of <laughs> putting it out there. Yeah. The Kindle, the Kindle in a way has uh, just the Kindle app on an iPad, let's say with 10,000 books on it, it's become kind of that digital shoebox. Yeah. Because my daughter is in the process working with my wife to get rid of all 8,000 of my books, physical books, mm-hmm. you know, just, you know, right now nobody wants them. Right. There's no walk-in bookstore or you know, used bookstore anymore. Right. right. So I won't have any physical books. So there's this idea, too, of what does that mean? Um, mm. you know, it just means I have to keep my devices charged, I guess, to have access to all these things. But it doesn't, you know, it bothered me for about three minutes when I mm. first heard that we're just going to, you know, get rid of all these books. Right, right. It wasn't really my decision. So there's that. But but the the reality is, is that the Kindle book, just for example, when people underline, I could open up the super users book and right. I can see people all over the world write underlining. You see the number of times yeah. in which what they find important, things like that. The other thing I was going to say, though, um, about books that is less romantic in the movie End of the Tour uh, about David Foster Wallace's uh, last tour for Infinite Jest. Um, great movie, by the way, oh, from a couple years ago. Yeah, un- unbelievable movie. And in it, there's a scene in David Foster Wallace's um, bedroom um, in the house he's living in in central Illinois. And he comes back from the tour and there are like all his books, you know, the remaindered copies or the copies, you know, contractually that the yeah. publisher gave to him. And they're just piled up all over the place. I've got the, you know, same thing, uh, less stellar books than David Foster Wallace, but still piles of books everywhere. And they are pretty meaningless. The reason you have them to begin with is you're supposed to mail them to people and people write reviews and it's self-perpetuating echo chamber. And I don't really do that so much, uh, not to save on postage, but because it just seems like this ridiculous game. But you get the sense that he didn't do it either as much. And he just the books just look like a commodity and more garbage that's piling up on his floor. Yeah, I'm so, sure that, that that getting rid of that clutter, you know, if to call it that thing is it that's part of that mindfulness <laughs> as well. Right. It's not yeah. weighing on you as the physical objects do. Yeah, exa- exactly. So there's that. I'm just putting that out there. You know, knowing that I'm devoting 12 to 16 hours a day, seven days a week to creating this artifact that I myself will trip over or just try to get out of the way or physically not be allowed to have in my own house, you know, it's pretty remarkable. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Right. Speaking of David Foster Wallace, have you heard his commencement speech? This is water. You're the second person today to ask me that. (laughs) We're not even halfway through the day. That's amazing. Yeah. So my wife just listened to it on the podcast and um, I've listened to it 300 times. Oh, so wow. yesterday for the 301st time, because she was, you know, I knew she downloaded and was listening to it. I thought just so I could, uh, you know, be reminded of what to have a conversation about, about it. Yes. I love that. I love it. I love everything about it. Yeah. You know, yeah. the fact that during a graduation speech, he says words that are probably never said before in a graduation right. speech. Right. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah, he just did not didn't care. I I I love that too. I and he he actually taught right here in the town that I live in at Pomona College, which is not Cal Poly Pomona, but another Pomona College. And I when I heard that 
Um, I think I heard it on Tim Ferriss's podcast. Somebody referred to it, uh, and then I found it online and downloaded it and listened to it. I've listened to it several times, not 300, um, but I've also used it just speaking about where where are we going from here as far as architecture goes in the profession and even our business where we where I work because we're like it, I can make the point after hearing that and talking about the story of the goldfish that look around you right now this is water right and yeah. and people like to think about it like isn't that a cute story for the fish like no <laughs> come on <laughs> personalize it it's right here right now it's all the time and and it's a it's a it's a powerful story so i'll i'll try to find it and and link to it in the show notes for this episode fantastic yeah and uh that would be the greatest way of defining the people in the industry like yourself who are influencing the way we see things is because you can see the water, if that makes sense. Yeah, take a step uh, back. Yeah, Take a step back. You have to objectify it. You have to both be in it. You, know, you have deadlines like anybody. Um, but at the same time, uh, realize while we're in the midst of it that it can definitely be improved upon. This goes for architectural education and practice, of course. But it's a um, it's it's not easy to do. It's a thankless task. It's something that needs to be done. And I think the most important thing is, just like you were saying before, I'm using this as an analogy. Are you a completer? Are you the kind of person who needs to complete a book? Mm-hmm. I think similarly, do you go, are you a complainer? I, 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 there are a lot of people who got together for drinks after work just to complain about yeah. the yeah. the field, right? Yeah. Um, and I've just decided I'm not going to, you know, I decided 40 years ago, I'm never going to complain. Every complaint is going to have to become a solution or a suggestion or a blog post or something. Yeah. Uh, yeah. To okay. the chagrin of my readers and listeners. But it's, yeah, it doesn't go anywhere just to sit around and complain other than make you feel better about yourself. Yeah, I I was in a situation like that on the receiving end of it one time and uh not not as far as like what it what it was directed at but as the the listener. And sure. at the end of the the session, I just had a simple question and I think that anybody could adopt this. This is not this is nothing amazing, but it's just what are you going to do about it? Yeah, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? And what's great is the person that I asked that question to has put that back on me several times as well. And, no kidding. And for us to have that kind of trust in each other to be able to do that is one of the most satisfying things that I find professionally. So if you can find people, listeners out there, who will challenge you to do what Randy just talked about, I think that that, you know, do, doing something and not being the complainer, but actually coming up with solutions or ideas to push things forward, I think that is one of the most valuable things that we can latch onto as professionals uh, to make our profession and the world a better place. It's you can't just sit around and complain about it. There's plenty of those people, armchair quarterbacking, and you know, right. it's just that doesn't get us anywhere. You actually yeah, have to be willing to do skepti- something. Yeah, skepticism is is part of our toolbox, right? I think Absolutely. it's really important to be skeptical. I think being disgruntled or complaining about something, not the act of doing it, but actually seeing a detail that drives you insane. Yes, you can. we can post it on Twitter and get a couple of good laughs about it, but is there something we can do about it? I mean, at the end of the day, that, that's really what's important. Not to be a joy kill or party poop, but it's just each of those things. I think, you know, in other words, 
I don't think it's important to be Pollyanna-ish. I don't think it's uh, it will, will work in our industry and the profession. I think it is important to have complaints, but then to reframe the complaint in terms of what you can do to improve upon it. Absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. Well, that sounds like a great place to wrap this up. I, I would just I have one for, final question for you is where can people find out more about you or follow you, what you're doing online? Sure. Both on Twitter, which is Randy Deutsch, R-A-N-D-Y-D-E-U-T-S-E-H, one word. And it's the same for my website, www.randydeutsch.com. Yeah, and I, I really appreciate what you share on there. I think, uh, you know, a lot of times you're just passing along links and news and stuff, but I think it's it's stuff that's kind of landscape generating for the profession that we choose to practice in. Um, it's it's what's going on out there. So I, thank you for, for doing that. That's it's a, it's a huge service to the profession, and I think a lot of people get a lot of value out of that. Thank you. Appreciate it. Likewise. All right. Until next time. Thanks, Randy. Thanks, Evan. Thanks for hanging out with us today. This show is part of the Gable Media Podcast Network. You can see all the shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A.com. You can help support what I'm doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and help get the word out. And of course, share it with your friends. I'd love to hear from you. So leave a comment on the website at trxl.co slash podcast, where you can find every episode. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. Just search for E. Troxel. Talk to you soon.